Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. I first met Malcolm, my husband, when we, <coughs> many years ago, when we were both on the team for a children's mission on Wimbledon Common in 1978. <coughs> so in the dim and distant past. It was well before the internet, mobile phones, social media, can you imagine? Anyway, as the days went by, we became more and more friendly. And after it had finished, he sent me a letter. This was a masterpiece. His words were crafted in such a way that if I fancied him, then it was obvious that he felt the same way about me. But that if I didn't, he hadn't made a fool of himself. The rest, as they say, is history. <coughs> well, <coughs> well, we've been delving into a very different letter over the past weeks, Paul's to the fledgling church in Thessalonica. And his is written much more straightforwardly than Malcolm's was to me. <coughs> what you read is what he means. No hidden undertones, no possibility of interpreting it in a different way according to what suits us. Paul has spoken of his love and affection for the church. He's encouraged them. He's taught them how to live holy lives. And he's taught on the second coming of Christ and how to live as children of light whilst waiting for this. And now we're nearing the end of the letter. Final instructions and benediction. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 28. <clears throat> we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Beloved, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all of them. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, I can't help but think as I read this, that it sounds as though Paul's either running out of time or he's running out of paper. Because whereas in the rest of the letter, 
Paul has gone into great detail as to what he wants to get across to them. As he comes to the end, his instructions get shorter and shorter until they're more like bullet points, as if he's cramming in as much as possible um, while he can. You know, hurry up, Paul, you'll miss the post. <clears throat> but just because his, some of his final points are concise to say the least, it doesn't mean to say that they're to be taken lightly. Did you notice how the shorter his instructions, the greater his emphasis? We ask you, urge you, see that I put you under oath before the Lord. Phew. Paul definitely expects the Thessalonians to take his words seriously, and they're for us to take seriously too. Short instructions can be just as valid as detailed explanations though we don't always take note. So my friend Leslie, she used to sometimes give our girls a lift to school. And as she dropped them off, she would always leave them with a concise exhortation from the film Freaky Friday. <laughs> Work hard, girls. Make good choices. I'm not sure they actually listened, but there you go. And then one of our children, when they were young, they were very fond of prevaricating over the need to follow a certain instruction by constantly saying, well, could you just explain why I need to have a bath, go to bed, do my homework? But, you know, if you trust the speaker and believe they've got your best interests at heart, concise instructions are enough. Think about Jesus. Come, follow me. That's it. Go and do likewise. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, be baptised. You don't need to wait for Jesus to specifically call you to do so and explain why in great detail. You just need to do it. And the Thessalonians presumably trusted Paul and had a good relationship with him. So they were open to his instructions. What about us? Who are we listening to as we seek to grow in our faith? Who do we trust, have a good relationship with? What's their walk with God like? Are we at least open to considering and following their guidance? And although it may initially read as though Paul's just jotting down random thoughts as they happen to pop into his mind, oh yeah, that one. When we look more closely, we see that they actually fall into three different aspects of church life before his final, final goodbyes. First of all, there's a couple of verses on what should be our right attitude to church leadership. The next two verses, how we um, have our relationships with one another. And finally, how to conduct the church's public worship. In other words, Paul covers the three main relationships of church members. To our leaders, to one another, to God. Well, I'm not going to go too deeply into these as I want to hone in on one particular sentence <clears throat> but it is worth highlighting a few things. Firstly, our attitude to our leaders. 
And here Paul's particularly focusing on those with responsibility for the spiritual leadership of the church. In our case, our elders. The Amplified Version reads like this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to appreciate those who diligently work among you. Recognize, acknowledge, and respect your leaders who are in charge over you in the Lord and who give you instruction. And we ask that you appreciate them and hold them in highest esteem, in love, because of their work on your behalf. It seems to me that people's attitude to Christian leaders range from they can do no wrong to they can do no right, sometimes depending on our church tradition, and neither of which is healthy or biblical. When Malcolm was leading a church in Wimbledon, there was one time when he was in a long queue in the post office. A lady from the church happened to spot him there, and she said, oh, I wouldn't have thought I'd see you here. And Malcolm said to me later, he said he wasn't sure whether she thought he was far too holy to demean himself by being in the post office, or whether she thought that the Holy Spirit would have taken him up and deposited him at the front of the queue. (laughs) But I wonder if in our sorts of churches, we're more likely to veer in the other direction. I heard once of someone who was stepping down from church leadership who said they were most looking forward to not being wrong. I'm always wrong. It's a bit sad. Now, I'm sure that we do actually love and respect our elders at Rev. They're great. (laughs) But Paul's ask could be just a little nudge for us to really appreciate them and recognize that they're the ones accountable to God for how things are going. Not sure I'd want to swap places. Take it from me, as a wife of a former church elder, they're dealing with a lot more behind the scenes than most of us may realize. And they have far too much integrity to make public some of those knotty issues in order to justify themselves. So we'll cut them a bit of slack. And I'm sure it will ease our elders' load if we try to live at peace amongst ourselves, as Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to do. And also, if we take Paul's words seriously on how we do one anothering, how we care for and um, take responsibility for each other. As he sets out in the next couple of verses, admonish, encourage, help, be patient, all summed up, I think, in Paul's words, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So easy to read. Not always so easy to do. But although there's plenty to explore in each of these, today I'll stick with Paul's line and urge us to just do it. Which brings us to our third aspect of church life, our corporate worship. And here, Paul's using the bulletest of bullet points, though each of them, I think, could merit a sermon on their own. 
Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So that's told us. Now we just have to make sure that we do it or don't do it. But however important all of these are, for me, it's the first sentence which really brings me up short and proves to be the greatest challenge. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And even though these instructions are included in um, how we worship together, not just how we live personally, surely our heart in our corporate worship together should surely mirror our heart as individuals. Sounds straightforward, but if you're anything like me, it's not. James was a guy in our church in Wimbledon. He was very disabled. He was only young. He was confined to a wheelchair and he had very severe speech difficulties. Yet, despite the effort that he took, he sometimes would pray out in worship his praise and thanks to God. My response to this? I'll never moan about my life again. How long did that last? Half an hour? I think it's sadly obvious that... um, my natural default isn't always um, rejoicing and gratitude. I wonder how the Thessalonians first responded to Paul's words. Remember, life wasn't exactly a bed of roses for them. As we've emphasised throughout this sermon series, Paul and his companions were only with them for a few weeks before they had to flee because of persecution. And life wasn't any easier now for the church who were still there. Also, they were living at a time when Greek philosophy was pretty influential. And however strange it might seem to us, joy was countercultural among the Greeks. They were more into Stoicism, which made a virtue of coping with pain and trouble without complaining or showing emotion the Greek equivalent of the British stiff upper lip. The more stoic you were, the more worthy you were. I don't think I'd have lasted five minutes, really, but there they were. But joy and thanksgiving is quite a theme in Paul's letters, not just this one. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Colossians 2, verse 7 overflow with thankfulness. Ephesians 5 verse 20, always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's tempting, isn't it, to feel a bit daunted by this and either slide into a pit of guilt because you're feeling a bit gloomy today or threaten a crisis of faith because you're having a really awful time and how dare God expect you to rejoice, etc., etc., But the freeing truth is that the focus for our rejoicing, praying and thanksgiving for our gratitude, whether in worship together or in our personal walk with God, 
is always in God. It's to God, and it's not in the state of our life at any one time. It's nothing to do with the power of positive thinking, and it's not dependent on our personality. I mean, some people are just naturally more cheerful than others, aren't they? And they can be annoying, I know, especially first thing in the morning. But we rejoice in God's love for us, in our salvation and our relationship with him. As the Amplified Bible puts it, rejoice always and delight in your faith. It's totally different to feeling forced to be jolly when things are tough. When life was particularly difficult for me at one point, I found great comfort in the words from a song that we still sometimes sing today. If all beneath me falls away, I know that you are God. We rejoice because we know that he is God. And it's really important to stress that Paul exhorts us to give thanks in all circumstances and not for all circumstances. It's not, I've broken my leg, praise the Lord. I've lost my job, hallelujah. Elsewhere, we're encouraged to weep with those who weep. We're not told to belittle either our own or others' suffering. When I was a young Christian, there was a book going the rounds um, called Prison to Praise, the premise of which was that if we praise God for all circumstances, it's a brilliant formula for miracles to happen. Mm. I strongly recommend you not to read it. This is the opposite to a book recommendation. I probably shouldn't have mentioned it. Don't Google it. You probably will. And then... In between Paul's urging to rejoice and to give thanks, he slips in those three little words, pray without ceasing. What? How does that work? Praying without ceasing? Well, he can't possibly mean never ever stop speaking out our prayers In another letter, in Romans, chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says he unceasingly makes mention of them in his prayers. Well, that can't literally be true, can it? Because in other letters, he says he's praying for other people. But I think it's very helpful. One commentator got me out of my misery. They described prayer as a spirit of dependence on God. We've got a quote, which I, I think is really helpful. They say, there is a spirit of dependence that should permeate all that we do. This is the very spirit and essence of prayer. So even when we are not speaking consciously to God, there is a deep abiding dependence on him that is woven into the heart of faith. In that sense, we pray or have the spirit of prayer continuously. It's a bit like when someone told a friend of mine about a problem that they had. Um, This person wasn't a Christian. And Amanda said that she'd be praying for her. Oh, are you sure? Do you mind? Was the response. Yes, that's fine, said Amanda. I'm always chatting with God. It's that continuous relationship which bursts into specific prayer naturally and often. 
sometimes chatting with God as we walked to the underground, at other times on our knees in deep intercession behind closed doors. And as the Amplified Bible says, be unceasing and persistent in prayer. We keep going in prayer with our spirit of dependence, not giving up even when answers are slow to arrive. And I think that this phrase, the position of this phrase in between rejoicing and thanksgiving, isn't because it's yet another instruction that suddenly comes to Paul's mind, and so he jots it down quickly while he remembers, oh, yeah, be, be thankful, oh, be unceasing in prayer. No, I don't think so. I think praying without ceasing, that attitude of dependence on God, enables us to rejoice and be thankful whatever our circumstances, because all three involve constantly leaning on God, and we do that as we pray. In this room today, there'll be a whole manner of circumstances that people are experiencing, some great, many less so, and I'm definitely not belittling the pain of these, the struggles the questions you're asking of God. There have been times when I've thanked God despite the tears of sorrow and anger pouring down my cheeks. But remember, we're rejoicing in him. We're rejoicing in our faith. We're giving thanks for God's goodness, not our circumstances, and we're leaning on him to be able to do so. I've recently spent time with someone who's decided to give up on God and do their own thing. God has allegedly let them down. Christians have allegedly let them down. Life is allegedly so much better without all that. But let me tell you, the things which make them joyful have a slightly hollow ring. When their circumstances go pear-shaped, go wrong, which is pretty often, it's just bleak. There's no sense of enduring hope, which we have as Christians. Don't be tempted to go down that path, whatever you're going through at the moment. If all beneath me falls away, I know that you are God. Lean on God. And to be able to do that, let's finish, as Paul does, with grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And this isn't just a nice way to sign off, just makes a change from best wishes or lots of love. Christ's grace encapsulates how we can actually live the way that Paul's encouraging us to do so. Yes, Grace is God's undeserved favour. Grace is his love and acceptance of us because of who he is and what Jesus has done by paying the price for our sins, our wrongs, our rebellion against him. We can have a relationship with God because of his grace, his favour, and not by what we do. We can't earn God's favour. It's all down to him. But grace is also God's power to enable us to live lives as he wants 
once we've made that step to trust in him, to follow him. As Paul puts it in other letters, 2 Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Chapter 12, verse 9. And the same letter, chapter 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency... In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Or as another version puts it, God is able to make you rich in grace. So whether you're pondering what you think about relationship with God, haven't yet settled that, or whether you've been a Christian for years and are acutely aware of your need for God's power to help you in your walk with him, the truth is we all need his grace. It's only by accepting his free gift of grace that we can truly live lives of rejoicing and gratitude to our wonderful God. And I want to end by um, reading a prayer which has become very, very precious to me over the last month. I think it will come up. And if it resonates with you, you might want to just make it your own. Lord, give me this day a heart of gratitude. Give me a heart of gratitude which is so filled with thanksgiving that worry and concern have no room. Give me a heart of gratitude, which remembers you as the present giver, who is my refuge and my portion. Give me a heart of gratitude, which cries out thanksgiving and praise, even in the midst of anguish, pain and frustration. Give me a heart of gratitude, which is capable of love, hope and peace despite the tensions, hurts, and foolishness of this world. Give me a heart of gratitude, which is ever and always yours. Amen.